On a world spinning its way to damnation amidst the fear and despair of a broken human race, who's left to fight for what's good and pure? Night rule is who. Uh, my name is Isaac. I'm extremely pleased and honored and humbled to be joined by master of melody, sultan of song, harbinger of hope, keeper of the sacred flame. You should know his name, Mr. Ron Sexsmith. Hello, Ron. Hi, Isaac. You're... Uh, we're speaking to you from uh, your home in Stratford, Ontario, where you've uh, you've found found yourself a spot to nestle in to uh, hunker down during this uh, strange and bizarre time. Yeah, I mean we've been here, I guess, uh, 2017, after you know 30 years in Toronto, and uh, yeah, it's a nice it's nice at my uh, you know my age uh, to to kind of have a new uh, kind of a a new place to start or, or a second chance or something. And uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's a great little town, you know. There's lots, I knew all before COVID, you know, with the theater and everything like that. But even with COVID, it's been a pretty good place to live. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I, I learned from some previous interviews you'd done that uh, you hadn't been songwriting, doing too much songwriting um, prior to moving there, but um, but you found some new inspiration once you kind of found this new spot. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, um the, just the changes in general, because it was a pretty big upheaval to move from Toronto to here. But yeah, I just saw myself um, walking the town every day, and and you know, which is how I write, you know, f through walking. So um, so yeah, I wrote pretty much my entire last record and a, a musical as well. The first, pretty much the first year that I lived here, um, and now I've, I'm just about to make another record in October, and those songs have come pretty much in the last five five or six months so it, it's been pretty um uh you know prolific place i guess so far yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear it i mean i'm not i'm not shocked i was not shocked to you know find out that upon listening to the latest record hermitage that uh you know it's more fantastic work i think it's probably the least surprising thing to my mind to listen to a new ron sexsmith record and, and find it just fucking fantastic um now I, I've heard also that you. This is the first time you've recorded all of the instruments on a record. Is that is that also true? Uh, yeah, except the, the drums. That was the one thing. Uh, initially, the, you know, Don Kerr produced the record. He suggested I should even try doing that, but it's a lot harder than it looks, you know. So, um, but yeah, everything you hear is me except for the drums, basically. And I don't think I would ever do that again. But it was it was fun. Uh, it was just a nice approach something different and uh, yeah and that was all his idea yeah it seems to me like it would be quite fun actually that's like the main the main thing I imagine it being um, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you so uh, again I totally love the new record I recommend it to everyone um, I think you know the best songwriters around are ones that can kind of tap into the zeitgeist can kind of look at the current kind of contemporary society and, and speak to um, their experience of it and, and how those experiences change and kind of have a little bit of a, develop a little bit of a viewpoint on it. I was particularly taken aback by the track, Is It or Isn't It? Oh, wow. And reading, you know, I'll just read out some lyrics for people here. Um, it's, you know, you say here, I bet you're waiting for fireworks and memorizing sonnets, expecting to find some butterflies in your stomach, but there's this doubt and you just can't overcome it that you're really just holding on till something better comes along. And in my personal experience, I feel as though we do very much live in an age where the, the kind of magic and beauty and resilience of romance has been somewhat blunted by these new systems that people have, you know, things like dating apps and whatnot. And I, I really do think there's a lot of people out there that even as they kind of go down a path of exploring a relationship with another person in whatever form, they do kind of have one, one eye focused over the shoulder wondering, should I be holding out for something better? And that kind of yeah. obviously can kind of undermine all kinds of things. Is that, is that an accurate representation of kind of the ethos of that song? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's funny with that song because, in in a way, I mean, it says what it says. But it, it, as a songwriter, it was just for me, it was kind of an exercise in writing. I was trying to write like a Motown song, you know, like a Diana Ross and the Supremes number. Um, but but yeah, it was definitely an observational song of someone that I knew. I felt, um, you know, you, sometimes you see these relationships and you're like, oh, that doesn't look like it's going to work out or something. You know, you just know the people involved and, you know, they're restless and, you know, they're, yeah, always looking over their shoulder. 
or who else is in the room who you know what other interesting person can i talk to you know that, that kind of thing and uh but mostly it was just kind of a play on words uh you know is it or isn't it or was it or wasn't it and all that kind of stuff it was just sort of fun to fun to sing and um yeah and that was one of those songs too because i always sort of considered it a bit of a a ditty and i didn't even know if i wanted it on the record but don don kerr really liked that one and so so we went we went for it and uh and i've met some people recently who said that's you know their favorite on there so what what do i know <laughs> <laughs> well i think it honestly really speaks to something that people kind of have on their mind maybe unexpressed or um yeah. you know unspoken but like really like we're living in a world where you know people mm-hmm. are are sifting their romantic life and really like a lot of their personal relationships through these kinds of algorithms and systems that ultimately yeah. are probably detracting from you know the thing that we're, we're ultimately looking for yeah. which is a connection some honesty and companionship right yeah and i think people sometimes uh they're trying to measure up to some impossible thing you know some romance they've seen in a movie or something you know when maybe you know you, you kind of have to see what's in front of you and make it work somehow you know and um not lower your expectations but just kind of be maybe more realistic and um yeah so it's, it's, it says all those things in a sort of kind of light-hearted way i guess you know yeah reminded me of a, something that i discussed previously in the podcast which was these studies they've done with people in their kind of 20s who go and see their favorite instagram celebrity or whoever at these little meet and greets that they set up and and they found that if they surveyed them and followed up with them, they were something like, you know, 40, 50 percent less likely to be in a serious relationship a few years later, likely because they had met their favorite celebrity crush. And now their expectations were just completely cartoonishly warped. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, a sign of the times, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff out there begging for your attention and and people's perceptions sometimes are not even close to the reality of someone you know who like a celebrity or something that they may have a crush on um you know from the outside looking in you know someone's life could look pretty sweet but uh it's not always the case right so. not at all no um mm-hmm. a former former guest harriet fraud who's a psychologist said that you know people are constantly uh comparing their own interior life to people's exterior. And I think there's yeah. no more true than in this case. Um, another track that it really took me aback uh, from the new record is, is uh, Chateau Mermaid. Um, okay. One thing I often, I often think about, it's, it's, it's something I kind of ponder in my more hopeful moments is, you know, um, and it comes from this, this uh, film called Afterlife that I really love, this Japanese film. But basically the, the proposal is, you know, try and imagine a single moment in your life that if that you would choose to live out in eternity if you went to the afterlife and they said pick one memory mm. and i feel as though shadow mermaid maybe constitutes that kind of uh that kind of feeling for you um yeah. can you talk a little bit about um your process and, and your your thinking around that song um well you know my wife and i we'd uh, come to stafford you know a few times looking for houses because we couldn't afford one in toronto and uh you know, and I was looking for a house that spoke to me in a way. I was, guess I was looking for my uh, Graceland or whatever, you know. And <laughs> and when I saw this particular house that we ended up buying, I just, uh, and it's just an old farmhouse. It's nothing fancy or anything, but it, I felt like, it, you know, I felt like I was home, you know, in a weird way. And so um, even before we moved in, I thought, well, this house is, uh, it's going to need a name, you know, it's going to need, like, George Harrison's place was called, you know, Friar Park, and right. and so I just, uh, you know, Colleen, my wife, has always been fascinated with mermaids, and, and it was sort of a play on words, too, of, of Chateau Marmont, you know, and I was thinking, well, how about wow. Chateau Mermaid, and so I remember just writing the song, even before I moved in, imagining myself living there, and people coming up the driveway to visit us, and, um, uh, just feeling very romantic about owning a house for the first time and living in a new place and and all the good times we would hopefully have in this new place. So it was definitely about all those things. Um, we have a great room 
for listening to to records here. It's something I've always wanted. I've never had. It's we call it the back rack lounge, but it's just like it's an old room above the garage that's kind of stuck in the 70s. It's almost like the Brady Bunch could live there. But it's an amazing room for playing records and socializing and having drinks. And and when I saw that room, I, I just thought, okay, i got to have this house. And uh, so anyway, so, but yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, it is a place that I did, you know, I, I associated with kind of a, a peaceful uh, time, you know, and, and maybe if they did ask me in heaven, where do you want to be? I'd probably say, put me in the back rec lounge forever with my records. And, yeah, it sounds like a great choice. Um, I'm mm-hmm. just curious. I mean, I know you say you, you listen to records most nights. What's uh, what's getting uh, some playtime in the, in the back rack lounge these days? Um, I tend, you know, I'm old, right? So I tend to listen to a lot of older things. Um, I mean, I keep my, my ear to the ground. I'm sort of aware of who's new out there and everything. But um, I found, especially during COVID, when I had a lot of anxiety like everybody else, I was listening to music, a lot of music by Warren Zevon, because um, he's one of my favorite writers. And he, he's, uh, something about his music always makes me feel kind of heroic, you know? Yeah, and, sure. and The Who as well something about their music, the aggression of their music, uh, which is the stuff that I loved in my teens. And I still love it. So I've been listening to, you know, records like that. Um, But also, uh, you know, tons of other stuff too. But uh, there's certain records that I keep returning to. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. I actually was checking him out based on um, another interview you did where you... um singled out i think it's his second record as as one of your favorite singer songwriter records and i'd known his stuff i actually really mainly knew him from his guest spot on the old larry sanders show i don't know if you ever saw that but they, you know they, they yeah. want him to play werewolves of london and he's, he's getting really pissed off because he's like everyone wants me to fucking play werewolves of london well yeah i mean it's a funny funny song and that's the thing with uh, you know a, a novelty song like that i mean he wrote it so fast in the 50 minutes and I mean I really like the song but but you but then you know becomes a monster in a way and um, you know a lot of artists have to deal all they have you know they're expected to play that big hit every time and he's got so many other you know superior songs to that um, but yeah the second album which is just called Warren's Yvonne it was the one before the Werewolves of London record and just from start to finish it's very cinematic and it's it's one of the best depictions of la of, of that time you know and all the delusion and that goes with it and um yeah very unvarnished so, very uncompromising yeah and he has a way of putting things in words that with his kind of you know with sense of humor um and also just you know he could write a song that rips your hard out too um and that's a record that came to quite late in life i mean not i I was sort of like you i i I knew where was of london growing up i never really zeroed in on it until i guess after he died is you know really when i started you know going oh my god where have you been all my life sort of thing Mm. yeah i have that same experience with a lot of uh, a lot of different artists Mm -hmm. um I wanted to ask you, I mean, I've got, I've got so many songs of yours that mean a lot to me personally, so I'm just so curious to ask you about them. I could probably talk to you about them all day. Um, okay. But uh, one that uh, particularly, I always found particularly powerful, maybe if I'm going through a time where um, I, I, I feel like I've made some mistakes, I, I'm looking back at the past with regret um, and trying to find a way to kind of process it. It's uh, the song Who We Are Right Now from The Last Rapper. Oh. Okay. Um, that I find, I always find find it incredibly profound, um, and just you know to read some of the lyrics here. Uh, Should you ever look behind, and if you don't like what you find, well, you know they say that life's for learning, mistakes designed to change your mind. And I've always I've always been particularly taken aback by that that last line there, mistakes designed to change your mind. Um, do you think that yeah. people being able to kind of process? Uh, painful experiences and being able to look back at their own life with a little bit of humility and humor and, and forgiveness is something that people really need to re-embrace? Oh, yeah, especially more than ever now, which I find to be very kind of unforgiving, almost puritanical period we're going through, you know, where people, they don't just want to call you out on things, they want to completely shame you and obliterate you into a, you know, fine powder or something. 
but, but yeah, I think to humility, you know, acknowledging mistakes and with a sense of humor and regret. It's, it's, and that song definitely, um, yeah, it was basically a song saying, don't be so hard on yourself because, you know, the culture is always evolving and certain behaviors that were the norm at one point maybe don't fly now, you know. And, um, yeah, so it was just, you know, I had all that in my mind when I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, because you like to think that you're evolving and becoming a better person and and all, and all the rest. So you have to really cut yourself and others slack for, you know, the way they were before, things they may have done or said. Absolutely. Um, I also think that a theme that I would say reoccurs in a lot of your work that I really admire is a kind of um, uh, unapologeticness, for lack of a better word. Um, I think perhaps best exemplified by um, the song Get In Line, which is one of my personal favorites. I was first exposed to it, actually, uh, it was a live performance I saw on YouTube that you'd done with, Mm -hmm. um, there was a couple of other songwriters on stage, and I always felt whenever I watched that video, that you know the the acoustic version of the song is just amazing. You do a great job, but I always I always felt like the other guys on stage would just look at you afterwards and be like, "Dude, like I'm supposed to be fucking competing with this guy? Like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. This this guy's talent." Well, that you know, yeah, that show was kind of a big thing for me, and that the song had just come out in the U- uh, in the UK that whole album, and so you know, it's funny that songwriter circles show aired the same night as the Love Shines documentary about me in the UK. So almost the whole country saw both. It was like three hours of me basically on, on British television. And, um, but yeah, it was a kind of a brand new song. And I was sitting on stage with two people I admired greatly too. I mean, Graham Goldman from 10CC and Fran Healy from uh, Travis. Um, but yeah, that song, it's funny because I wrote it in literally you know, maybe at 45 minutes it took me to write it because I was upset about a co-writing experience I had had uh, with some, you know, who shall remain nameless. And I just, it was a situation that made me feel really bad. And so I went away and I wrote this song, uh, Get In Line. I wrote it actually backstage in England. I was opening for Nick Lowe. And, um, but then, you know, it's, it's so funny that way because there are other songs you spend weeks and months on but that one, you know, it ends up getting to number three in the charts. And it was it was so kind of cathartic to writing it. Just sort of got it off my chest and immediately felt better about the whole situation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a religious man, but there seems like one would have to suspect that there's at least a possibility that when, you know, something <laughs> it springs forth so fully formed and so freely that... There's some kind of almost supernatural possession going on. I don't know if it's <laughs> tapping into the zeitgeist again or something like that. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, I wonder about that, too. I don't know. Well, I mean, how could you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you you yeah. must. Um, another another uh, track that I often go back to uh, that keeps on kind of saying new things to me is uh, is Wishing Wells. And speaking about, you know, mm-hmm. hoping that we're progressing and evolving and doing better, you know, at the same time, individuals and societies do also de-evolve and take stepwards backwards steps um and you know read it like just reading some lyrics for the audience here um you know wishing wells are fine in fairy tales but they've gotten a business here where evil's very real and children are known to just disappear magic spells still hold no currency when people are lining up to sell their dignity when reality's a show They'll crawl through mud. I mean, is that song you feel even five times as relevant these today than I think it was in the 2004 or something like that when that album came out? Yeah, um, it, I I wonder. I mean, it, it definitely feels very current. Um, you know, I, at the time, I mean, um, I just come back from uh, you know this long tour, and everyone kept talking about this show. Uh, survivor which I'd never seen and uh, and so finally I got home and I happened to be on one night and, and yeah it was that whole thing of these people willing to kind of humiliate themselves on on television to for some prize money and I and that's kind of where the song started and I just remember saying oh we ain't got a hope in hell <laughs> and then thinking you know thinking later like oh that's that's not a bad idea you know for a chorus or something so I 
again, it, that song came quite quickly too, because uh, you know you get thinking about stuff like that, and you then you find yourself on a roll if you're if you're able to focus on it. If there's not something else that you sh- should be doing, and uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember thinking George W. Bush was really bad, but I would take a hundred. George W. is over one Trump, you know, so mm-hmm. just when you think things couldn't get any lower, they, they do, and, and, and it's kind of shocking. So maybe this, this, that song is more relevant now. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I feel, I feel like a lot of great art, not even just songs, but can kind of end up having this kind of prophetic quality a little bit. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask you about... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Feel for the Driver, I believe, is the name of this one. It's yeah. on the same album. Um, Feel for the Driver in the aftermath of a child who chased a ball across his path for the ones involved and the most unloved. I feel, I feel for the driver. Can you talk about um, where that song maybe sprang from a little bit? Yeah, well, I think it's just kind of where my mind goes because I, um, as, you know, as awful as it would be for any parent to lose a child that way. my And I would totally sympathize, but my heart would also go out to the person who has to live with that, you know, they made that one mistake or that maybe it wasn't even his fault, you know. Like I had a friend from my hometown that, um, you know, was involved in a sort of a manslaughter situation and he never meant to do anything and it ended up in a tragedy. And you know that just for that kind of uh, for the rest of his life you know it kind of it's like a mental prison in a way you know when people see you on the street oh that's the guy that you know did that one mistake that he's been you know painted with forever and so that song was just trying to um you know every verse actually was just trying to see you know all sides of a situation and not to be so uh, judgmental, um, because you know it could happen to anyone, um, and uh, so that's what I was sort of getting at, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's actually underexplored. Um, I mean, you know, you can look back at literature and things like the Scarlet Letter. Um, there's a great Mads Mikkelsen movie called The Hunt that I think kind of touches on the same theme of of kind of like someone suddenly thrown on the outside of society and and just the loneliness and despair of having gone through this personal tragedy where maybe your own culpability is not really that clear and and yet you know you find yourself kind of on the outskirts yeah and yeah I mean you can you just kind of have to uh, be grateful to not find yourself in that situation because like I say just one wrong turn or move or, or you know one wrong word sometimes you can find yourself on the outside of of that you know so yeah yeah absolutely um i also wanted to ask you in in the song snake road you claim that you yeah. won't any longer be taking satan's advice um, <laughs> i wanted to ask how did satan respond to this and are the two of you still on speaking terms <laughs> that's funny um yeah i mean the, again the, the record that that one was on was called forever endeavor and um, I was taking stock of, of a lot of things in my life because I had uh, I would sort of I had a cancer scare, you know, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, well, this could be the last record I make, and I was going for um, cat scans and all that kind of stuff, and then I was also trying to make this record, and while that was going on, so a lot of the songs on, on that album are kind of going over my life, and so Snake Road was just sort of a, a song about. Uh, you know, just being a touring musician in the 90s and the sort of the cliche sort of hedonistic kind of lifestyle that goes with it that was destructive for all my health and on my, my family. And um, so, yeah, it was a song about trying to stay on the path and, you know, just trying to, to be a better person again. And a lot of this, a lot of my songs tend to come from a sense of regret of, of the past or um of wanting to be better and but also you know that one i'm also doing it in a again a sort of a light-hearted way kind of taking yeah. you know taking uh, some shots at myself and um and and also using the old biblical temptation and the apple and everything like that yeah. so um it was just sort of fun to write you know musically too because it's kind of in that i don't know 
sort of little feet kind of place, you know. It's a bit kind of bluesy, and I don't tend to write songs like that. So, mm. so yeah, it was just a fun one to sing. Sometimes I, I, I wish I had more of a John Lennon voice. I think it would have gave the song a bit more power than my sort of Kermit the Frog voice. Oh, but, no, it's a toe but, tapper. No, it's great. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, no worries. Actually, speaking of uh, the Prince of Darkness, I do want to read a quick... Uh, a quick ad for our sponsor. Um, yeah. Night Rule is sponsored in part by the Cryptocurrency Scam Exchange. Are you tired of defrauding pensioners the old-fashioned way? Cryptocurrency Scam Exchange is here for you. We carefully curate the latest in cryptocurrency scams from Do- Dogecoin to Webistics, so you can be confident you're promoting only the most artisanal, high-quality cryptocurrency scams. Special offers available now. Use promo code FRAUD for an extra 10% off. Um, I also feel as though... Uh, Snake Road and, and another one of uh, maybe one of your well-known songs, uh, Strawberry Blonde, is is yeah. somewhat in the tradition of, you know, I think about Randy Newman and Bowie and people that kind of really have a lot of drama in their in their songs and their storytelling. You know, you you listen to their song and you really mm-hmm. see characters kind of come across your your mental view. Um, and I remember uh, a great interview with Randy Newman where he said, you know, I, I kind of thought when I was doing this new kind of form of storytelling, dramatic storytelling, that, you know, I was I was running out of the trench into, into no man's land and that people would uh, be inspired and, and follow me. Um, I mean, I think you're probably one of the people that did. But uh, but can you speak to like that element of and especially now that you're working on the musical and you've written a novel, like how do you yeah. do, do you feel as though there could be even more exploration of this kind of. Um, almost theatric or, or dramatic form of storytelling in song? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it's, it, I never really set out to, even Strawberry Blonde, my original intent was to write it in two verses and write a kind of impressionistic song, but I, I just couldn't do it, so it ended up being this more, uh, you know, just almost like a miniature Dickens novel or something, you know, and... Uh, which, you know, it's still one of my most requested songs. But but every now and then I find myself in the middle of a story song, and it's, you know, and it's it's a challenge, you know, because you, you're trying to, in a matter of verses, you know, have a sustained thought, you know, and uh, have it come out and resolve in a way that makes sense. And, I mean, the, the novel is totally different because that was, like, new territory for me. It was actually easy to write the songs for the musical because as I was writing the book... I could see the characters breaking out in the song, you know, and and uh, and that's something that I'm working on. I'm hoping someday it'll end up somewhere on a stage or, or something. Um, oh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. But uh, but yeah, you know, I do. I love story songs. It's not always possible for me to write them, but uh, whenever I do, I think there might be a couple on this new batch. Um, but I'm, I'd have to go back and look. But. Um, but yeah, I'm always excited. I'm always most excited about the new songs because, you know, it's kind of where my head is at r- right now. Of course, yeah. Um, I found it was interesting uh, when I was researching this and, and hearing about kind of your early days playing um, playing a lot of requests in the bar. You had a, a, a rule, you know, you'll play anything almost other than American <laughs> Pie or um, Hotel California. And I wonder, do you think your life would be different if you had accepted requests for American Pie? I mean, I know you probably would have just wrapped up the third verse yesterday. So, I mean, it, must yeah. have, it could have been a whole different life. Yeah. Well, I don't have a, even a problem with that song or Hotel California, but I just remember, um, you know, you'd go to a bar and those songs would always, get, you know, come up, someone would play it. Or there's other songs too that I've forgotten that were also people were kind of expected to play it's kind of like hallelujah right <laughs> everyone was doing that song for a while it kind of drove totally. me nuts but um you know but i was actually pretty good at taking requests like i was a bit of a performing monkey when i first started sometimes people would even buy me a record and say hey could you learn this song off it or that song off it awesome. and i would go home and and i and do it you know and they'd come back the next week and i would play it for them um there was a certain kind of you know, just really wanting, really eager to please. Um, and uh, and it was also an education for me as well to, uh, you know, like I remember some, someone was saying, ah, oh, you know, you should play some John Prine, and I'd never heard of John Prine. So next thing you know, I'm listening to John Prine, and, you know, my life is better for it. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it was. I'm so glad I went through that period because uh, it just 
I was, you know, just to get the nerve to stand up on stage in front of a bunch of drunks and try to win them over was a good learning experience and uh, and stuff that I've carried with me this whole way. Mm. Um, I know you're a big fan of the Kinks. Um, yeah. I actually, I came to them pretty late. I probably got into them maybe five or six years ago. Um, and mm. I know you, you played... Uh, you played on stage. You played Misfits with uh, Ray Davies, right? Yeah, twice actually. Yeah, oh, that must have been surreal. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I had met Ray as a fan, you know, waiting for his autograph, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, when I when I finally got a record deal and I'm making albums, I heard to the grapevine that he he liked my stuff or. Uh, and then sometimes like he'd play Toronto and I got to go backstage and meet him. But this one particular time, uh, it was in 2011, he was curating the Meltdown Festival in London. And, uh, and so he had requested for me to be on, you know, on the lineup. Um, so that was just so surreal. So when we went over to London, you know, he was there to greet us at the uh, Royal Festival Hall. And uh, yeah, we ended up working up Misfits in the dressing room. And I just couldn't believe it, you know, that I was going to be on stage with him. And uh, so the next time he was in Toronto, he reached out and I went and sang it with him in Toronto, too. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's kind of like God to me in, in the songwriting realm. I've, he's the one that I think people can detect the biggest influence from him in my music. And, mm. you know, he's just in my DNA the same way that, you know, Lennon and McCartney are and... Uh, you know, Gilbert O'Sullivan or whoever, all those melodic people, I always, you know, or Harry Nilsson is another one. So, mm. Yeah, and I know you said that, um, you know, comparing a band like the Kings to a band like the Beatles, you said, you know, th at times the Beatles seem so immaculate and so perfectly yeah. formed, then the Kings kind of had this rough edge to them um, that made yeah. it more approachable, made it almost aspirational, something you said, something you thought to yourself, hey, maybe I could do that. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, like, I find as I get older, a lot of the music I, I look, end up going back back to more and more and appreciating more and more, um, probably particularly a band like Devo are, are groups that, you know, have incredible musical complexity, incredible command of of the music and the melody and the harmonies itself. But they also are unafraid to add a little bit of what seem what may seem like noise or chaos, but in a, in a weird way is that does actually have its own kind of harmony with everything. Yeah, um, is that is that something you think about in terms of like you know you don't you don't want a song to come out like a like a marble statue you don't mind it having like a few rough edges. Yeah, um, and I and I'm not a producer, so I've worked with all these different producers, and they all have their own bag of tricks, you know. So sometimes, like some of my first albums, if somebody slammed the door in the middle of a song, that would end up on the record, you know, because that's <laughs> that's what Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake what they were into at the time, you know, that sort of Tom Waits kind of junkyard approach. Um, but I've also done albums that were like marble statues that were really slick, like the one I did with Bob Rock or, um, you know, even the ones I did with Martin Treffy. Some of those ones are pretty, uh, you know, they're on the grid and, and all that, and and they're very contemporary sounding. Um, and it's just, it's just fun for me to work, because I come in with the songs, and you're always... Uh, trying to think, well, where can I go this time? You know, what, how do I approach it? Like even with Hermitage, for for Don Kerr to say, I think you should do an album where you play all the instruments. All of a sudden, that gives you a way into it that's going to be completely different from anything else you've done. Um, because ultimately, they're they're all going to sound like Ron Sexsmith albums. But from a production standpoint, and based on where the location of where you did it and what musicians play on it, you're going to get that's where sort of the character comes from and whether it's warts and all or whether it's slick or whatever and because I, I listen to all kinds of music stuff that is you know like the kinks that is more rough around the edges um, but I also love um, things that are um, shiny and slick and all that too yeah um, who, who do you look to for inspiration or who's inspired you the most is just in terms of like arrangement because oftentimes I'm when I when I'm re-listening to s songs of yours maybe songs that I know really really well I'm, I'm taken aback by just the quality of the the, the overall arrangement yeah um, I guess I don't know I mean there's the, you know you have to kind of look at the Beatles and the stuff they did together with George Martin they always seem to 
just I don't know if it was luck or whatever, but they always seem to land on the the right vibe. Or you know, sometimes there would be this this exotic instrument, you know, that would you know, you know, like some kind of weird piccolo or something that would yeah. come in, or a harpsichord or something that would just give the song that, you know, that extra sweetness or something. They always just seem to know at any given time what they what song what the song needed and also um you know how they should look at any given time like they all seem they really moved together as a band um but yeah uh again uh, i always loved randy newman's um symphonic arrangements sure. you know and uh, i guess you can't really you know forget brian wilson too who was you know so elaborate in his you know just look at pet sounds or smile just to to be able to have the vision to think, okay, I'm going to need two bass players and I'm going to need, like, you know what I mean, like bringing all these horns and flutes and things. Uh, because, you know, recording the studio, you know, studio time is not cheap. And so to have these musicians, you know, show up, you got to put them to work. And, and he would have it all in his head, what he wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, I'm sure there'll be other people once I get off the phone. <laughs> like, you know, like Backrack always had really cool arrangements, I thought. So. I mean, I think Stevie, you know, is way up there. Stevie Wonder, for me personally. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, it's like insane. Yeah. Like, from 1970 to 1980, that discography just continues to just blow me away. And to be honest, actually, Ron, if I'm yeah. going through a difficult time in my life, I actually find a lot of times I'm listening to a lot of your songs, and then I, oh. I, I graduate from that into Stevie. I don't know why. That just seems <laughs> to be the flow for me. <laughs> Well, I love Stevie Wonder. I mean, how he's just—he he kind of, he, you know—you just sort of stand back in amazement at, at his body of work, right? It's just oh, yeah. unreal. Have you and, seen the the concert he did for German television? It's on YouTube. You can you can look. No, it. it's, oh, it's it's incredible. He does some. He does a couple of songs that he never actually released himself. You know that other people released and recorded. He does this incredible kind of um, mm. lo-fi, uh, down-tempo version of Science Seal Delivered that will just knock your oh. socks off. So. Um, I'll look for it. Yeah, definitely. I'm really anxious to see Summer of Soul, which he's in very, uh, very young, right, in that in that movie. But it's this, you know, sort of Woodstock concert they did in '69 of all R&B artists in uh, Harlem, and it's okay. on. Um, yeah, it's supposed to be an incredible concert film, so I'm dying to see that. But he's in it, and Nina Simone and other people like that. But um, yeah, I know I love Stevie Wonder. Uh, my favorite actually is one of his later songs. I always love that song, Overjoyed. I just can't get over the chord progression on that song and the melody. It's just so ambitious, you know. But anyway, I love it. Yeah. Oh, he's his his melodies are incredible. I mean, I think I think honestly, mm-hmm. you you and him are two of my favorite guys when it comes to just pure melody and and just mm-hmm. the. The vocal improvisations and and variations are just really intoxicating in both cases. Um, although I won't I won't yeah. embarrass you by, by comparing <laughs> you to Stevie Wonder. I'm sure that'd be no. I mean that guy's that guy's just yeah beyond. It's just beyond belief what he can do or what he's done. You know. So anyway, and we did. You mentioned the Beach Boys, and I think actually ironically, and I remember it was a good friend of mine and my my co-host on my other hockey podcast is a big Beach Boys guy, and he'd always say you know they were actually remarkably underappreciated, especially their later stuff. And yeah. I remember the very first time he played, he, he like invited me over specifically just to put on uh, Busy Doing Nothing and playing it for me. And I'll never forget the first time I heard that song. Yeah. Um, just like, <laughs> just an incredible yeah. kind of stream of consciousness um, yeah. work that just like kind of baffles the mind and is kind of shocking, but just incredibly yeah. charming. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been listening to a lot to this album they did called Holland which is mid-period, but I mean, you think Brian Wilson is only on like one song on it, you know, but it has this great song by Carl Wilson called Trader that I love, and it's got, uh, um, yeah, it's just like a really cool record that I was not familiar with. Apparently it was Tom Petty's favorite Beach by album, so I was sort of checking it out. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a, a lot of material there. You know, everyone talks about Pet Sounds, and that's probably their greatest achievement. But, you know, there's other stuff before and after that that really hold up. Absolutely. Um, I know we said we'd go for 45, so we can start the wind-down procedure. I don't want to keep you all, right. all day, but, I mean, I could talk to you all day, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, so, I mean, you, you have recently published a book, Dear Life. It's kind of a modern fairy tale. Um, yeah. And I'm curious if you can speak to, I mean, I mean, obviously... 
there's analogous kind of elements to writing a song versus writing a novel, but like as, as a kind of a different challenge, a different form, mm. a different um, kind of constellation of things going on. Um, mm. what, what did you learn or what, what kind of, what kind of, what did you notice going through that process? Well, um, the thing I was most proud of was just being able to, to complete it, you know, because um, <laughs> it's, everyone says they're going to write a book, but it's, it's, it's just actually do it. And then it's not a very big book. It's not like I wrote War and Peace or anything, but it still took me a long time, about 16 drafts. And it was just, uh, yeah, the thing that I found kind of most amazing is I had the sort of basic arc of the story, but as I got into it, you know, all these other side stories started taking shape and characters that I hadn't even foreseen at all. And then I would also find that some things that I wrote in the beginning of the book would sort of magically connect with things that happened later on in the book and I didn't really intend for that to happen so mm. it was just and also I was I guess really surprised at how attached I got to the characters just personally I don't know if anyone else said but I mean just as I was writing it I got really was re really rooting for them and I didn't know how it was going to end I didn't have an end worked out or anything and I just remember just typing furiously at this in the last few chapters it was almost like and it's a cliche but it was almost like it was writing itself and i was just reading it you know so um so there was a lot that i found very surprising and i know that a more seasoned writer or novelist probably could have really tweaked it and knocked it out of the park but i think it's a pretty good novel for a songwriter you know to write mm. and uh but i think it could be made better if i can can get it off the ground in a stage play or in a movie or something because then you know like whatever weaknesses it has could be addressed and and it could be made better you know mm. yeah one on a previous episode i discussed kind of the, the form of the novel with a former professor of mine and we talked mm. about these these kind of russian literary theorists that talked about the novel as kind of a collection of different social speech types different elements different voices and 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 how really it's this reflection of the kind of whole rich life of a, of a complex culture and society from which it springs. So in yeah. that sense, it's maybe not surprising that things happen like, you know, a character taking on a life of their own, um, mm. things from the beginning uh, somehow magically connecting. I think you're being too hard on yourself, Ron. I think, I think yeah. you know, this, these kinds of things are things that every probably novelist contends with or every writer contends with. So I got I to yeah. check it out. I'm, I'm ashamed of myself for not having a copy. Well, it's a very short read. You could probably read the whole thing in two hours or something. But it's, it's you know, and I'm a huge Dickens fan and a huge fan of um, Hans Christian Andersen and Road Dahl, and it's sort of in that vein. And all, all you know, whenever I would get stuck, I would be, well, what would Charles Dickens do? And um, obviously it's nowhere near as good as those guys, but I just mean those are, the, those are my reference points. And Mark Twain, too. I was going to ask kind you of, about Mark Twain because I saw you yeah. quoting him. Uh, recently, are you? So you're, yeah. a big, you're a big fan of Twain. I am. I am too. Yeah. So those are the people. They, they, I love the sort of humanistic elements of his work, and same with Dickens. The always rooting for the underdog, and and always approaching life with a his descriptive. Uh, you know, he had a sense of humor when he was describing peoples and Absolutely. and their faces and whatever. You know, so I tried to bear all that in mind when I was writing it. Um, you know, because it is a fairy tale and it's sort of an old fashioned. It's very square. It's not like some sexy fairy tale or something. It's very, very much uh, old school, old fashioned. And uh, yeah, so all those guys were, you know, looming large in my imagination. So. Have you read his um, his last? Uh, it was unfinished novel, The Mysterious Stranger. It's what, um, Dickin, Dickin? No, uh, Twain. Twain. Oh, Twain. Oh yeah, because the last unfinished Dickens one was the mystery of Edwin Drood or something like, something that, like that, which yeah. I which I never read. No, I didn't read the that, no, it's, that it's, Mark it's Twain. Really one. interesting. It's set in kind of uh, like late feudal Europe, and and Satan is is one of the main characters. <laughs> which oh, is awesome! I'd love to read it. Yeah, my favorite of his is Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Totally, totally. And um, which I want to reread again. I read I reread uh, Tom Sawyer recently again, and I enjoyed that. But yeah, have to I'll scout that one out and see if I can find it. Yeah, I'd also recommend if you haven't seen the the two part Ken Burns documentary on him, um, yeah. that changed my life. That was just just okay. incredible stuff. When you, 
And you just see, you see, you hear about at the end of his life just how disgusted he was at how little progress humanity had made. You know, he was touring the world in the 1890s just seeing the kind of full um, tragedy of, of, you know, colonialism laid bare. Because um, yeah. I think a lot of people prefer kind of a, a more neat and tidy version of history. It's like, oh, Mark Twain was this progressive thinker and he showed people the way and somehow everything just got better from that point, which, of course, we know the reality is a little more complicated. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and all those guys. I mean, they're writing so elegantly, but the times they were living could be quite barbaric. I mean, times are quite barbaric now. But, but I mean, you know, for Dickens to walk down a London street at the time he was alive it would have been shocking, right? Just the things he would see and smell oh, yeah. and everything. You know, the, the rotten houses, food and, yeah. and and all that stuff. So I mean, those guys uh, managed to take, you know, with their minds, you know, managed to elevate the whole thing right and and i don't know it's it's all those writers i mean they didn't have as many distractions i guess as now but they they really uh yeah they could i don't know they really inspired me as a young reader so yeah i want to be mindful of the time i'm hoping to try and goad you back on because i honestly i need to ask you about you know leonard cohen i need to ask you about meeting paul and uh, linda mccartney and and that one chord that you hit on that one beach boys song i think it was uh, caroline's (laughs) Caroline, no. Caroline, no. Yeah. <laughs> the moment where yeah. you know Paul McCartney's waiting for you to hit the one chord, and he's like, "Yes, yes." <laughs> yeah. Well, I had just learned that song, so, uh, and I knew he was a Beach Boy fan, and I was sort of sitting there. I didn't want to play him one of mine. I was a bit too afraid, and so I broke into that. And but yeah, I could just see him. He was sort of. He had a guitar too, and he was sort of playing along. And um, yeah, when it came to that chord, I'm not even sure if he knew what the chord was, because. But yeah, when I when I hit it, I think he maybe he was expecting me not to hit it or, or use some <laughs> other thing. So he was very much, uh, yeah, cheering me on there. But uh, yeah, that was quite the day for me back in '96. Oh and, my God. Uh, yeah. I can imagine. So, so um, yeah, I mean, I haven't met him since or anything, but that one time was pretty special. So. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And and you know, um, really just just. The, the amount of people you've, you've uh, collaborated with and, and your body of work is just pretty staggering. So um, I promise to not, not try and goad you into another interview for another few months. I'll let you do your thing, but I'll, I'll have to definitely yeah. at least try and get you back on. Um, yeah. In closing, I wanted to read something that's been on my mind and I think is perhaps relevant to this conversation. It's from a, a book. I, I interviewed this author, David Austin. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote this book about Linton Quasey Johnson called Dread Poetry and Freedom in the Unfinished Revolution. And, and in, in one section he talks about poetry, and I just wanted to read this as kind of a closing thought. Okay. Um, this is from page five. Of all art forms, I suggest that poetry is particularly well-placed to articulate society's needs and to at least hint at social developments to come. In some mm-hmm. cases, this ability not only reflects artists' rare gifts, but also their freedom to articulate in verse, and particularly in dread or destitute times, what others dare not say or cannot see. Society often turns to its poets to shed light on the contemporary social situation, to pose difficult questions, and at times to provide answers or at least present political possibilities. Great artists are often well-placed, even best-placed, to assist us as we probe human possibilities, and poets are particularly well-suited for this role. Mr. Ron Sexsmith, thank you for probing those human possibilities for us. Oh, I didn't thank you. I was wondering where you are going with that, but yeah, I mean, that's the role, isn't it, of the poet, of the artists or whatever right to articulate things that are hard to say and so thanks uh, for noticing i've been trying to do that <laughs> oh and accomplishing it i mean honestly yeah. you know i i recommend your work to all uh, everyone i meet who's who's a fan of music mm-hmm. in any kind of serious way and i think you know honestly i'd be shocked if your if your songs didn't live on in, in future centuries and and just really appreciative mm-hmm. of all the the hard work and the courage and the forthrightness oh, you. that you've shown bro Wow. Yeah, and, and we'll, uh, we can do this again sometime. I'll just, you know, uh, just let me know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, and again, I promise not to try and twist your arm too soon. Um, yeah. Okay. All right, well, my this has been my favorite lunch hour in weeks. Thank you so much for taking the time. Everyone should yeah. check out Dear Life. Everyone check out the new album Hermitage, and really your whole back catalog is just, there's, there's a wealth of stuff to explore there. So enjoy the rest of your day. Hope the family is well. Um, and yeah, let me know it. when this is going to air, and I'll tweet it out to people who, is, who are interested. So Absolutely, okay. yeah. I'll probably, probably be out yeah. tonight.
Heavy clouds all hanging around And the sun refuses to shine If you're bent on bringing me back down Better get in line Something I've said has got you so mad You wanna give me a piece of your mind You intend on making me feel bad You best get in line Whoa, it's a long line, it's a long line It's going out the door You'll be waiting in line a very long time Till your feet are sore Whatever I do, I'm doing it wrong And if you feel the need to remind me of a world that's long gone Take a number and wait in line It's a long line, it's a long line It's going round the bend You'll be waiting a long time, it's a very long line can't see the end Heavy clouds all hanging around And the sun refuses to shine If you're bent on bringing me back down Better get in line I never meant for your flowers to wilt Or to sour all your sweet wine If you mean to shower me with guilt Better get in line Crying over milk that's spilled. Take a number and wait in line. You best get in line.